This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today we are wrapping up our mini-series on fellowships in neurosurgery. Today it's just me and JP again. Uh, JP, it's good to talk to you. You too. Uh, busy times. Uh, we, we've had to do a few of these separately, a few together, so it's great to get back on the air with you. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing you in about two weeks at the spine section here in beautiful Miami at the Fountain Blue. Super excited. Congratulations to Adam Cantor on his presidency or chairmanship, I should say. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of fun to see you again in person. Hopefully we get a lot of recordings in. Um, yeah, I, uh, I can't wait. I haven't been back to Miami. We were just talking about this since the pandemic. And so I'm excited to see what's different about the city, uh, what hasn't changed. And the last um, the last spine section down there was your meeting. Uh, that was actually the year I matched. And I remember the, the day of your uh, spine section president's address was match day itself. And I remember being there for your talk, which was great. So it'll be fun to come back and be at the Fountain Blue. Absolutely. We're looking forward to seeing you in person and doing some recordings in person, which would be amazing. So looking back on this um, mini series, I, you know, I've had a little time to reflect and um, think about how difficult it is. And I just had a conversation with one of our residents uh, yesterday. He's sort of struggling with what he's going to do with his life. And it's kind of unfair. People are sort of being, at least in Miami, being pushed to kind of pick sides a little earlier in their residency, like in their third year or fourth year as to as to where they want to be whether they're going to be uh, with the spine group or with the endovascular group or with the tumor group. And, you know, they, they don't really have all the information at hand, right? And they're not really sure. And anything you get, you have to give up something else because time is so limited, right? So, you know, what what are your thoughts coming out of this miniseries? A lot of great conversations with a lot of bright young people uh, trying to figure out their path in life. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, the pressure is real. Um, I, I don't think at Rush, we aren't getting pushed to make these decisions quite that early, but talking with my, you know, other residents around the country, my friends and people at different institutions, I, I think particularly in the fields of spine where some of the fellowships are starting to book people earlier and earlier, but then also people interested in endovascular because there's the two years of training and people trying to get that first year done during their residency. I think those are the two biggest fields where you see people feeling that pressure to kind of declare themselves or set themselves up earlier and earlier. And so I, again, at, at Rush, we haven't felt a push to, you know, hey, welcome new intern, you've matched, what do you want to be in six years? We, we haven't quite got that far, but I definitely hear it from my friends around the country. It's tough. It's tough to make decisions so far in advance. Yeah, I, I'm looking back and thinking about when I was going through this process, and this is now going to be in the the mid to late 90s, 1990s, um, when I was looking at fellowships. And um, it, it was different back then because the only real fellowships that were truly across the board being endorsed were the pediatric fellowships. There really wasn't uh, a lot of people spending extra time in, say, functional neurosurgery. Uh, spine surgery fellowships were just sort of getting going. Endovascular was just beginning as a field in a way. Uh, so it was quite different. And everybody was told, you know, you're going to be a generalist. You're going to be uh, able to do every kind of surgery there is. But I do think that if you just look at the number of procedures, different types of procedures we do, not the volume, it is really very different. Like functional used to be essentially um, temporal lobectomy for epilepsy, 
plus deep brain stimulation and maybe vagus nerve stimulation. There wasn't a lot of, you know, some electrode mapping. It wasn't sophisticated like it is now when we've had so many of these great uh, guests like Eddie Chang talking about what they're doing to the brain to affect its function. And so we've really come a long ways. And I could say the same about spine. I could say the same about, obviously, endovascular, um, you know, even fields like tumor. I mean, tumor tumor is, you know, neuro-oncology has changed a lot in terms of how research is done, in terms of the type of procedures they do, uh, laser, all these things make it so that, I mean, how do you, you're in residency now. Can you possibly learn all the procedures properly in seven years? Well, <laughs> Well, that's the idea, at least. But you you make a you make an excellent point, and I, I think the the simple answer is no. I don't think it's possible that um, anyone graduating, you know, someone can be competent to assist in the attending as at a chief level at the end of seven years, but to go out and practice and book your own case without anyone anyone to bail you out in every domain of neurosurgery, I think would be insane to attempt. And I don't think a hospital would let you, um, you know, it's, as you say, the breadth and the depth of all of these subspecialties in the last few decades has just expanded wildly, um, which I, I think perfectly tracks with the, uh, the rollout and establishment of all these fellowships that we've been discussing in the past few weeks. Um, so I, I wonder, Dr. Wang, because we were talking right before we started recording about as you just brought up the fact that you, you know, you did a fellowship and at the time when you were finishing your training, as you just pointed out, it was kind of necessary. Like that, that was, you know, you could say the advent of modern spine surgery was right around this time. So, um, one of the biggest questions, particularly with spine fellowships that we've been exploring on this podcast, uh, in the course of this series, we referenced our conversation with, uh, Dr. Trinellis here at Rush about, why people do fellowships. Last week, we rebroadcast my conversation with Andrew Chan about how and why he did his fellowship. So looking back over the past few decades and you know the differences in the field now versus when you were finishing, what's your answer to that question, Dr. Wang? Like, If one of your residents or someone you know comes to you and says, do you think I, I need to do a fellowship XYZ, how do you approach that conversation with people? Yeah, so but I I love that question. It's a very very important one, and I'll give you my opinion. But first, let me just add that I don't want to misspeak and have people get the wrong impression that technically neurosurgeons, when we finish our training, are actually on paper qualified to do all of these things. But I guess what you and I are talking about is can someone do a lit and then in the same day do a T ten to pelvis and then turn around and do a giant sphenoid wing meningioma and then turn around and coil an aneurysm in the in the endovascular suite all in one day, right? Right. That's what we're talking what's about. What's feasible, what's realistic for a practice. Right. You have to have some emphasis because let's just say there's 70 kinds of spine surgeries and there's at least that many. Uh, and let's say there's there's 700 or maybe let's make it more parameterized, 500 or 400 procedures that we do. I mean, the old RRC classification doesn't even matter anymore, like carotid endorectomy, right? Like, you know, the, the, the milestone procedures that they're looking at for the boards um, and the RRC, like the... They, they're not even beginning to capture, like they still classified as thoracolumbar fusion or non-fusion. Like <laughs> really? Like, you know, what about lateral? What about ACR? What about disc replacement? What about, you know? So, so what we're really saying is that yes, every neurosurgeon trained finishing residency should be able to have capture of the breadth of procedures he or she wants to do, but 
it would be uh, odd uh, and very difficult for a surgeon to be able to do all 500 or 700 types of procedures we do with a high level of skill or expertise, right? And I was thinking about how Dan Eichberg gave a talk at Grand Rounds about connectomics and how now they're changing the way they access deeper tumors based on the white tracks um, in a much more sophisticated way than people used to do when I was in training. And I was always told, well, you just don't go through this area and you can get to the tumor, right? And what Dan's talking about is a very sophisticated way of getting around inside the brain without destroying the tracks or the connections or whatever, right? And that's something that is quite foreign to me, not in concept, but in practice. So if you ask me to approach a complicated parietal deep-seated lesion, I wouldn't be prepared to, to figure that out from a connectomics perspective, right? right? And is that necessary if you're in, in, in the middle of nowhere in Alaska and trying to take out a deep hemorrhage? Probably not. But that's where the difference is, the nuance, the high-level stuff. So same thing for spine. Um, but, but in answer to your question, you know, when I talk to these people, I say, listen, you know, it's become such, and maybe it's not totally uh, across the board, so I'm going to generalize here, that there is a tribe that you can live with. So, for example, like the spine surgeons, we're a little bit more like the orthopedists, right? We, we tend to like putting in metal. We tend to be a little bit more physically robust. Um, we're not afraid of standing for long procedures and seeing lots of patients in clinic and having to deal with, you know, their their bubomites problems, you know, like my pain, my this and that. And so the spine surgeons are a little bit different. You know, they're they're stylistically quite different than say the functional surgeons who are much more wonky and 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 they're a little they're kind of geeky, right? They're kind of like they're not as focused on things like you know the business model and all that. And when I was um, in training, I actually thought I was going to be a functional surgeon because I was very interested in pain. And I still am incredibly interested in pain as a concept. And then Udi Mendel, one of my chiefs said, no, Mike, you are not going to be a functional surgeon. I said, why? Functional is the future. And this is 1997, right? He said, no, no, it's not about that. You're not going to fit in with them. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, just the way you talk. You're not going to fit in with that tribe. They're not your people. You're going to be a spine surgeon. Right. And I said, wow, that's a big statement. He turned out to be correct. So I think if you think about your personality and you go back to when I was chair of the spine section, my talk was about the win loss matrix. And if you can define your uh, ability or, or comfort level with handling, let's just say one dimension is patient morbidity or complications, you can define who you're going to be in our field. For, for example, if you can't handle having lots of neurologic deficits, you can't be a skull based surgeon. Yeah. Right, you just can't do it. Or vascular surgeon, you cannot do that because you'll be miserable. If you can't listen to people whine about their pain, you can't be a spine surgeon. Real, you can't be a great spine surgeon. You can get through it, right? But you're you're going to be miserable. You're going to hate your job. So that's what I. And I don't know, JP, you're going through this right now. How do you feel about that? Similarly, if you can't get up in the middle of the night to to do stuff emergently, you can't be an endovascular surgeon, right? Right. So, so those are the ways that I look at it rather than, well, I'm really interested in, you know, the T4 or, or, you know, the parietal lobule. Like, I don't think that, I think that's what you do when you're in high school. I think once you become an adult, you got to figure out what am I, what am I good at? What do I like? What do I hate? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I recall um, when I was going through medical school there at Miami, I developed a similar perspective about, um, figuring out where you fit in, in the landscape of just medical specialties. And, and that 
realization I had was similar to what you're talking about. We're thinking about what kind of patients you want to interact with for the next 40 years of your life. And it was very similar to what you're saying. Oh, you have to be able to listen to people whine about their pain. It was that sort of thing. You know, it, vascular patients, do you want to see diabetics and hypertensives or in GI, you know, there, there's a certain culture that people with different classes of disease develop because they have the same problems, they have the same complaints. And so they develop a certain personality. I, I found seeing patients in medical school, there were different personalities in different groups of patients with different diseases and different, you know, organ systems involved with disease. And, and so I think that's very true within neurosurgery as well. You've got your cancer patients, you've got your functional disorder patients, your spine patients, and all of them in the process of having the same medical problems and the same symptom complexes develop, I think, patterns to their personalities, patterns to their psychologies over the years of dealing with those issues. Um, I hadn't previously thought about the, the, the professional tribe side of it. I guess I hadn't thought about it explicitly, but you're right. If you're someone who's going to do a fellowship, then you are kind of signing yourself up to join a group within a group. And so it's not just the patients you're going to be interacting with. It's what colleagues are you choosing to have for the next few decades? What meetings are you going to go to and who are you going to hang out with at the meetings? That's a very salient point. Well, you know, think about, for example, like if you're going to be a functional neurosurgeon, you have to deal with neurologists all the time. Right. And so if you don't like dealing with neurologists and some people don't, right? I mean, do residency, you see that. It, it, it's, it's hard because they are the people taking care of your patients by and large. So, you know, you and I have seen so many students come through. And when, when you and I first met, we went through this. It's unfortunate that there's so many people out there that want to be neurosurgeons. And, you know, the, you look at them and you talk to them and maybe maybe you could be wrong about it. But a lot of times you say, well, I don't think that's the right field for you. And, and not that we are in a position of judging what people should do with their lives, but you get the sense that they're not going to do well in it or they're going to be miserable. And we have our own reasons for thinking that. But yet, the individual may feel, well, I really want to be a neurosurgeon for reason X or Y or Z. But in the end, you know that if that person becomes a neurosurgeon, that there's a high probability they're not going to actually like doing this job, right? Which is if you if you can't handle like seeing some tragedy in life and sometimes tragedy at your in your hands, meaning mm. it's an act of commission, right? You did this. Now, I'm not saying that you meant to hurt somebody. I'm not saying that it wasn't unavoidable. I'm just saying that you have to, if you're not sociopathic, absorb that you had a role in this. It's kind of like, um, you know, like I, I was watching this movie where this gang had captured this kid and they make the kid take a gun and shoot his own father, right? And granted, you know, they're making this kid do this. But the fact that he had to pull the trigger and kill his own, his own dad will scar him for life, right? That's the point, right. right? So in the end, let's say that you can't handle stuff like that. Like you can't handle that. You took someone to surgery and they died on the table or they they're, they're, they can't talk anymore. They're blind. Then to some degree, you really can't be doing this job, you know? And, and, and you see that, right? And I would say you take that a little further and refine it a bit. And then you know what the specialty is. I can't think of a single skull-based surgeon who doesn't have morbidity left and right um, unless they're doing suboptimal resections or they're lying, right? Or they're not operating. I mean, right. have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen a skull-based surgeon who doesn't have lots of casualties like that? No, and and 
again, as, as we're saying, you know, at, at a certain point, it's, it's not even to the fault of the surgeon, it's the pathology they're dealing with. It, it's like talking about mortality in, uh, you know, in neuro-oncology, that, that's, that is the stock and trade, the, those patients are going to die within the next few years or even sooner. And, you know, that that's the natural history of their disease, the natural history of doing a vast swath of skull based procedures is some kind of neurologic morbidity just because you're there. And as you say, uh, the, the, the person who wants to pursue that field has to be ready for it, certainly early on in their training, but even as they, they grow and become more adept at what they're doing, then by definition, they're going to be doing more complex cases, which will, uh, you know, also carry higher risk of, of complications and the morbidity. What I wonder is how much of that ability to absorb the morbidity, as you said, how much of that is innate and how much of that is developed over time with each complication kind of strengthening that resolve? You know, it's so interesting, right? Because you, you studied psychology, right? So I'm going to go back to the big five personality traits, right? right? And when you look at those traits, I mean, it's well discussed that it's one of the strongest predictors or simpler predictors, I should say. Now we have very complicated AI algorithms. One of the simpler linear predictors of a person's uh, demeanor and action and maybe even outcome. And so, you know, when you look at um, certain individuals, certain imp- individuals, let's just take uh, along a spectrum. Okay, let's talk about the empathy perspective. So everybody says you should be empathetic, right? Oh, be empathy, have more empathy, have more empathy. That's great, except if you overdo the empathy, you cannot do anything. For example, if you take it to the Buddhist extreme, the true Buddhist monk extreme, that they don't even step on grasshoppers and cockroaches, right? They don't kill anything if they can help it. Well, so you can't really move forward in life in a uh, in a in a true natural environment in a way. Nothing against the Buddhists. I'm just using it as a as a metaphor that you know everybody says. Well, you got to be empathetic. Okay, fine. Uh, I'm going to go to clinic tomorrow. I'm going to see 68 patients. If the first person demands time, then I need to be empathetic. So I should spend seven hours with that person, leaving me three hours to take care of 67 other people. Right. So there's it's not in a vacuum. So you go to the other extreme of empathy, and you have sociopathy. Right, so the true sociopath feels no um, emotion. I, I'll just put it at that—not just guilt or remorse, but no emotion with regards to human suffering. I think that's the definition. Am I right? You would know more than me. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, and and as you are alluding to, I think they're very low capacity for empathy. Right. So I, I know lots of uh, surgeons, and this is not a negative necessarily, who who regularly have major catastrophic, like for some people would be almost considered career ending complications. And the next thing you know, they're joking around like within minutes about some other thing. Right. And right. so you could argue, well, that's a sociopath. But on the other hand, how are they going to get on to the next case so they can continue to get better? And, and, and of course, if the person is incompetent, then it becomes carnage, right? And that's the job of the training program. But if the person is in the proper setting, they get either weeded out of that field or they get better at what they do, meaning the actual physical outcome, which is what we care about, independent of the person's emotions, the, the surgeon's emotions, improve. And so you need to have a certain resilience to 
suffering to get past a certain learning curve, right? It's just like in war. You can't, if, if you're afraid to fire a gun, if you flinch every time you hear a bullet go off, you're never going to be a marksman or a sniper or whatever, right. right? It's impossible. You're never going to get past the training. So I think that from the perspective of who we see, I, and believe me, you know, I, I'll get in a lot of trouble if I say, look, when we're screening applicants, we're screening for people who have that trait. But everybody knows that when, when surgeons ask you a question, what's the hematocrit? And you can't answer it like that. It's not just about the knowledge. It's your ability to function in the absence of complete information. And that requires the willingness to be wrong and the willingness to move forward after you're wrong. And so I do think that there is a very strong ingrained natural um, personality makeup that, and I've wanted to do this, that we could administer a test. And I think we mentioned it on um, one of the earlier interviews that that test would tell you, oh, you are most likely going to be a pediatric neurosurgeon or that's the right field for you. Right. That would be very interesting. I, I think, you know, thinking about empathy and its role in a surgeon and or in a neurosurgeon in particular, not to get away from tech, you know, not using any kind of technical definitions, the way I always, I always used to think about it was that there's empathy, which is the ability to perceive another human's emotional state and understand what they're feeling. And, you know, as it, the, the classic phrase is put yourself in their shoes. But then there's sympathy, which is do you care about what they're feeling and are you affected by it and feeling what they feel? And so I, I think what you're describing is this ideal balance within the surgeon to, you want to be able to perceive what people are feeling, A, because that's, you know, that's part of our job is to figure out the mental state and the subjective uh, experiences of another person that, you know, that's diagnostics, right? But then the sympathy side of it, I think we're all motivated by some intrinsic human compassion, otherwise we wouldn't be in this field, but you can't, it can be disabling if it gets to a point where that the sympathy and the compassion you're feeling for someone suffering is in control of you and your actions rather than you being in control of yourself uh even in even in the face of that compassion that you're feeling for someone because then you, you can't act to ameliorate their suffering if you're just sitting there holding their hand and crying with them for seven hours like you said and and i think what it comes down to is this ideal trait uh perhaps you could call it that uh osler uh, you know, in, he gave a famous uh, graduation commencement address called equanimitas, which was equanimity, which is the ability to control the way you comport yourself, the way you behave, the way you speak. And, and you're talking about a, a junior resident on round who doesn't know the hematocrit. We all know what it's like to be in that situation because we've all been through junior residency and training. And when you get asked a question, you don't know the answer. You, you can see there's a spectrum of how different people respond in that situation and who can cover, who figures it out quickly, who finds some way out of it and who, you know, stammers and their, their throat locks up. And it's that equanimity, which, you know, something as simple as answering a question like that to your attending on rounds is a microcosm of 10 years later where you're the attending you're alone in the room with a patient who is hurt or the family member of someone who's hurt. And they ask you a question that doesn't have a good answer. But how do you respond in that situation? Tension, pressure on you, all eyes on you, no one's senior to bail you out. And a family member asks you, what do you think we should do? And it's two in the morning and there is no quote unquote right answer. How do you respond? And it's all part of that same quality where 
you're not overcome with emotion. You can compose yourself and respond professionally with gravitas and with authority, so to speak, to guide these people through a terrible situation. Yeah, and I think I think since you talk about the inborn trait and then the growth piece, which is what you can change or what changes over training, I think you're right in the sense that the part that you can grow if you're willing to do it is the ability internally to shoulder that, I'm going to call it emotional burden, mm-hmm. but there is emotional energy involved in this, which is if someone is, is reflecting to you their suffering and you have the ability to understand and read it, as you say, because you're empathic, right? And the sympathetic piece is the part where you, you're in resonance with them, right? You're, you're resonating with them, which means you become, you suffer, right? You, you become depressed or unhappy or sad because of their unhappiness, right? That resonance between two, two living beings, hmm. that is the part that you need to shoulder more of. So in other words, how much of that can you take? So you have a certain built-in percentage of empathicness, right? If it's if it's there's got to be some, right? Let's say it's big. Then you've got to shoulder that, and you've got to deal with how many cases. So you'll see this in some surgeons. They don't do a lot of surgery, and they don't do it because one of the reasons is emotionally they cannot shoulder that. Their, their platform, their foundation is not strong enough without leading to personal erosion or destruction. Right. And you see that. You see surgeons that become involved in drugs and alcohol, not just because of addiction, but because of the sadness um, that they have to absorb. And then what you try to build up is you try to build up that internal base so you can you can do enough surgery to help society and see the suffering and feel it and not have it destroy you. Because you see that at the end of career. You see so many surgeons who become so cynical about what they've done. And and I don't I don't think that it's because they didn't help society um, to a great degree in the aggregate. It's that they personally, as a human, couldn't shoulder more. That's the part I think that we try to draw out of our residents to get them. I always tell people, you know, you know, Mike Wang's yelling at you in the OR, right? Well, listen, if, if, if you can handle that, right, that's the beginning of your ability to control yourself, to be able to understand, okay, I can handle this. I can do this. Right, it's kind of like a live fire exercise where the people are working uh, in through a, through obstacle course, but they have to hear the the gunfire, the howitzers, or whatever, and they have to not be um, unnerved by it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about the development of that trade because you you're famously optimistic, and you you're you're famous for your positive attitude that you've maintained after so many years in practice and being as busy as you are. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the development of that quality and the ability to maintain that internal emotional intellectual well-being you could say but i you know a question occurs to me and as always we're running long and going off into the weeds and spinning out into 19 different directions about the philosophy and psychology of neurosurgeons but um, maybe to to try to bring this back to the idea of fellowships and and put a bow on this the, the question occurs to me that we have spent a lot of time today, but also just in the course of this podcast for the past few years, talking about the selection of residents and the selection of um, someone who will be a neurosurgeon, the personality type of a neurosurgeon, and how we pick those people. But I wonder, as the head of one of the largest, I think the largest, and one of the major spine fellowships in North American neurosurgery, 
what's the process like and what's your selection process? What, what qualities do you look for in people when you're selecting fellows? The, the same question about the mentality and, and the psychology of the individual that we've been exploring for residency applicants. What's your process like when you're evaluating a fellowship applicant? That's a great question, JP. I feel like we can take almost anybody who's a neurosurgery resident, almost anybody, if they're open-minded enough and we can build the maximal potential in them. And there's there's different kinds of spine fellowships. And, and we were talking about this earlier, the way this fellowship is run here and University of Miami and Alan Levy trained me, Barth Green, and I run the fellowship now. It, it's It's it, people, we're not trying to put people in a mold. In other words, a lot of fellowships are like, like, I want this. I want this person who can do long deformity surgeries or someone who can do MIS. We don't look at it that way. We're like, okay, well, we're going to make you the best spine surgeon you can be in one year of training. And so there's four pillars of our fellowship. And, and only one of those four is the surgery. This is the funny thing about it, right? So the surgery is only one quarter of the training, whereas most fellowships will tell you that's most of it, right? And, and not because the surgeries here are not sophisticated. As, as most people know, we are extremely sophisticated in the breadth and depth of what we do, but I, not necessarily any more so than, say, Chris Shaffrey's shop or Pravimu Manini's or you know, Vince Trinellis's, right? So that's a quarter. But the other three pillars are the ones that matter the most that differentiate us. So one of them is how to deal with the clinic. And the clinic is not just about seeing patients. It's about how you manage a clinic, meaning how do you deal with the part that the patient actually sees? The third is how we deal with societies and travel and the national uh, rubric. In other words, how do you fit into your tribe? How do you interact with your tribe to that effect? And the last part is about persona research and reputation. So in other words, how do you do the research? How do you do the talking? How do you, you know, give the PowerPoints? How do you do these different pieces that are part of sort of the academic grind, right? So these four pillars are all equally important. And over the years, and I was looking back at the fellows, I mean, I personally have, you know, been involved as fellowship director with almost 40 people now. And these people, men and women, they've all gotten different things out of it. Some people liked it more than others, right? But what we do, what we do not do is say, look, I'm going to look for the guy with the highest board scores or the guy who has the best letters. I think that the folks who sometimes came in with the least amount of accomplishment ended up doing the most. And so we realize that human potential that in spine, it's almost like doing a fellowship's like resetting. Maybe your residency sucked. Maybe you weren't the best resident, but you could be an amazing attending if you go through this process. So, you know, I, I could go, as you know, I can go along, I can go on and on and on about all these pieces about what it is like to be a spine surgeon. I love it. You're right. I do not burn out. And I'm not, I don't want to say I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm a realist. Like, you know, dealing with our patient populations is exceedingly difficult. And um, this is where spine is different from the other fields. You know, we're the most likely to get sued, right? And we have, we, oh, we're the most likely to be killed. If you look at a, a murder of a doctor, I want to say almost half the time it's a spine surgeon, right? So how do you interact with society if that is your face, that is your label, that is your, that is your designation? And so that's the part that we're teaching in the clinic. And, and not everybody likes me, right? Like, like I'm, I can be very hard on patients, but I'm actually testing them to see if they really need to be with me. And, and some people hate it. Some people are like, that guy is the biggest fucking asshole I've ever talked to. He should be fired. Good. Okay. We've settled the fact that you don't need my help, right? We've settled the fact that this isn't going to go forward, but we can separate now. We don't have to go on and pussyfoot around how I'm going to kiss your ass. You're going to kiss my ass. That makes for human friction. 
the reality is being a spine surgeon, I'm, I'm going back to spine because that's what I do, is very different from being an endovascular surgeon. I, I would say a typical endovascular surgeon has more and more morbidity in one month or a couple months than I do in my entire career, right? But they don't get they don't get faulted for it the way we do. They don't have to they don't get the angry reviews, right? So I'm working on this talk now that I'm a new talk cycle, uh, which is why spine surgeons hate clinic, or it could be why all neurosurgeons hate clinic. And and I've been thinking about this a lot. I'd love to talk to you more about it because I know you're very uh, you're very analytical and you're very uh, measured and you're you're very intelligent. So I'd love to get your opinion. Maybe we could talk about that on another future podcast. That would be great. I, I look forward to that talk from you. I think you are perhaps the perfect neurosurgeon to explore that topic. I will also say you forgot the fifth pillar of your fellowship, which is uh, piloting a boat in the canals of North Miami in the dead of night, which (laughs) anyone who comes to train with you will learn on the fly at least once. Um, But that's a no, that'll be a exploring the surgeon's relationship with clinic from your perspective will be great that even the way you're talking about it there where you're testing them, it, I think that's very appropriate because we're coming to the end of match season. And that's similar advice I, I always used to give people going through the match process. I would say, listen, you're, you're so concerned about the binary of if you match that you try to make yourself seem appealing to every single program in the country. And you're not actually, you're not going to fit in at every single program in the country. So why don't you just be honest and present yourself for who and what you are including your personality and your interest in things. And there will be programs where you'll actually fit in. And if you're honest about who you are, you'll be more likely to wind up somewhere that you'll actually fit in instead of just any place. And it it sounds like it's a similar process you're doing with your patients where you go, listen, this is who I am and what I'm like. If we're really going to enter this relationship that could go on for however long and I'm going to do surgery with you, like this is me and this is you do you like me? Do you even, do you want to interact with me for a few years and and go down this road together? So that's a, that's a very uh, direct approach to establishing a therapeutic bond, as they say. Because JP, for me, it's not transactional. It's not like I'm going to operate on a person and never see them again. Like they're my patient for life, right? Um, Bob here used to say, don't ever operate on somebody you wouldn't be willing to have dinner with, right? And there is a piece to that, but I would add that it's not about me liking you because there's lots of people who can't get help anywhere else because maybe they seem odd or they seem like a bad patient. And if the patient can inter- interact with me, I'm not going to turn them away. That's right. not how I do things. But let's go, because we're going to run out of time, let's go real quick. Written boards this week. Do you have a message for the people listening? Uh, I do. So I've been uh, studying hard for the past couple months. I'm taking it myself on Friday. Um, it's, uh, this Friday, March 10th, I think the biggest difference for myself, uh, preparing to take it this year is access to the CNS, uh, SANS question bank, um, which is a, it, it's life changing. Um, I would recommend every, like everyone taking it should have access to this, but this is, if you're not aware, Dr. Wang, it's a question bank that the CNS SANS put out, which is actual question stems from the test with an interactive computerized format, very similar to the test or similar to a- any medical students or junior residents. It's like you world when you're preparing for step one and step two. And for me personally, that's the way that I studied best for those tests in medical school was by doing questions. And so this is 
far and away a, an incredibly strong um, study aid versus just reading a textbook and trying to imagine how will they ask these questions. So um, I, I think anyone at any institution has access to those questions. And then there's, you know, a million books in the world that they draw from. So just study up and like, you know, we, we've all been taking tests for decades now. Um, I, you know, it, it's on Friday, study up, get some rest and you'll do fine. Yeah. Don't stress about it. Um, the boards, you know, it, it's probably going to be one of the last written tests you ever take. I don't know what MOC or maintenance or certification will be like in the future, but hopefully this is one of the last tests you're ever going to take. Enjoy it. Don't stress about it. Just prepare. Life goes on. You know, some people get really caught up in this and it's you're not being graded in that way. I know some programs like we want you at this percentile. Listen, the most important thing is to be a great neurosurgeon and, and taking a written test. You've taken enough tests in your life. Don't stress about it. Get the rest. Yeah, it'll be the last time you have to think about a polysaccharide storage disease. I, <laughs> I look forward to forgetting Neiman Pick and Sphingomyelinase and all of these words that make neurosurgeons twitch. That's right. Well, thanks for listening. We are really um, on on mark for more and more growth. It's it's just been amazing. Our listeners have been loyal to us um, through the pandemic, after, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in person. And then, uh, JP, you want to make a quick pitch? Anybody going to be at the spine section if they want to be interviewed? Uh, We've reopened because we're not doing the miniseries now. We've reopened a lot of exciting, diverse topics that I think will be interesting to a, a wide variety of folks out there. Yeah. Um, anyone who would like to talk with us, we'll, we'll be reaching out to friends and people that we're interested in talking to and, and seeing again at the meeting. But anybody who wants to come on air and thinks they have something to share with our listeners, you can always reach us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Um, and, and again, just to wrap up with, with the message of gratitude to our listeners, you know, we're, we're averaging four to 5,000 listens a week these days which is insane compared to when we started. And again, if you think about just the number of neurosurgeons in the country, um, that, that is literally five times uh, what we were pulling for an average weekly uh, listenership you know, just a couple of years ago. So we cannot thank you enough for continuing to tune in and supporting us and uh, listening to these crazy thoughts that we have. So Uh, Thank you for sticking with us, and we'll see you all in a couple weeks at Spine Section in sunny Miami. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.